Welcome to the Give Back Economy, a podcast about social innovation and social enterprise. Now with your host, Peter Miller. Welcome, and today we go to the northern part of California to talk to Mary Beth O'Connor about an interesting life that she has led, and we'll find out a little more in just a minute. So Mary Beth, tell us where you went to school. Uh, I went to Berkeley, both for undergrad and for law school, although because I had a long-term meth addiction, um, there was actually 16 years between those two events. So, <laughs> What did you study there? I was a history major as undergrad. Yeah, I was a history major. But I, it, law school was always my intention. It just took me a while you know, to get, to, to, to get there. Okay, so let's talk about your work experience from your teenage years on. Yeah, so I mean, I was a blue-collar girl. I worked, you know, in high school. I worked, my first job was at a, a Stewart's root beer stand, like an A&W root beer stand. I cooked there. <laughs> um, and then when I was in college, I worked through school. You know, like I had um, basically 15 to 20 hours a week working, and I worked, like, for the university in different departments. Uh, when I got... Out of college, I started my my meth addiction, which had done a little better. I mean, it was really bad in high school, a little better in college. But at the end of college, it got bad again. And so I had jobs that were, I say I worked my way down the corporate ladder for 10 years <laughs> because every job I had was less money and less responsibility because I was using all the time and I couldn't get there. But when I got sober, when I was 32, I sort of really had to start from where I was. And so my, even though I had a Berkeley degree and good grades, my first job was like a low-level temporary admin job. Then my second job was a permanent mid-level admin job, then a supervisor job. And then at six and a half years sober, I went to Berkeley Law School. Um, I worked at a big law firm, then I did class action work for the federal government, and then in 2014, at 20 years sober, I was appointed a federal administrative law judge. Um, and then I took early, always emphasize early retirement, and now I, I'm an author, I have a, my memoir out, From Junkie to Judge, One Woman's Triumph Over Trauma and Addiction, and I do a lot of speaking, I train lawyers and judges and others about substance use, and I write opinion pieces like for the Wall Street Journal and LA Times. That's all. <laughs> it's a lot. My husband says, I don't know what retired means. I need to look it up in the dictionary. <laughs> uh, I, know, I know that feeling. I have no intention of retiring. Okay. It, it, exactly. I mean, this is really because I'm I'm now don't have an employer. I can talk much more openly about my my personal you know trauma history, my substance use disorder history, and try to help reduce stigma and be part of the conversation. Talk about multiple pathways. So I view this really as my time to be of service in a way that I wasn't able to do when I was working. Well, let's go back into your teens and tell us. I mean, I read about it, but I, I think it's better coming from you. Tell us what happened in your teens. Yeah, I mean, I, the short version is really child abuse led to childhood addiction, right? And that is a common combination. And so for me, my mother wasn't connected to me and she could be violent. But when she married my stepfather when I was nine, things got much, much worse. He was very violent with her. He was physically, sexually violent with me. It was just... You, 
you know, walking on eggshells. You never knew what was going to happen out of my control. And so when I found my first drug, which was alcohol, it was Boone's Farm Strawberry Hill Wine, which a lot of people know. Um, what I noticed about it was how much better it made me feel. And so it was, you know, it was a positive in the beginning. And so I pursued alcohol right away, starting at 12. I added in weed very quickly, pills, did a lot of acid for a while. But when I was 16, I found methamphetamine, which became my drug of choice. And I was shooting meth within six months at 17, full bore addiction in high school. So it was a quick escalation, but it was really an effort to manage my pain and to survive my, my traumatic life. So having said that, did you say anything at school or? I'm sorry, did I what at school? Did you say anything at school when this was <laughs> happening? No, I mean, you know, look, the police came to our house a couple times and they never really did anything. One time they arrested my stepfather because he literally almost killed my mother. It was, it was bad. But generally speaking, I my experience with authority figures was they're not going to do anything. And so I didn't really say anything. And you're really taught not to say anything when you grow up in an abusive household. And as far as the drug use, well, that I knew I had to, you know, I had to keep secret. That's not something that you really share. And so, and also in high school, it wasn't that bad until maybe the end of my junior year when it started getting really out of control. I mean, I, I used excessively before that, but the meth was a whole new level and it really took me down at a much quicker way. Mary Beth, how did you afford it? Where did you get the money? Well, I was working, but I also, I was a pretty young girl, you know, and so there's a lot of free drugs when you're a pretty young girl. That's just the reality of the situation. Yeah. My goodness. So did you buy off the street then, I guess? Well, there's nowhere else to buy, you know, those kind of things, right? It's off the street. And, but I mean, I, I grew up in a small town. It was, I mean, you knew everybody. It wasn't like you're buying from strangers, you know, there were, you know, it, it was, it was people I knew, people I was introduced to from other people. It was sort of a, you know, you the the drug users in a small town tend to sort of hang out together and everybody knows each other. And so there's sort of a system in place. It wasn't like I was cruising streets I didn't know or looking for, for people I didn't know. It was all readily available in my hometown from people that I knew. <laughs> but the, the teachers never identified the problem? No, they never said anything to me. Um, and um, toward the end, I think they were may have been getting concerned because I was really starting to look bad. I was losing a lot of weight. I was missing a lot of school. I missed a lot of school at the end of my senior year, and, but they let me make up the work. I told them I was having problems at home, which you know was true. I just I didn't mention the drug use. So they they helped me um, make up the work so that I could graduate and still you know keep my GPA up at a reasonable level. Let's move forward a little bit. How did you get out of it? Yeah, so I mean, so from college to 32, right when I graduated college, I mean, that was 10, those were 10 pretty miserable years, and I things got worse and worse. And by 32, I was really having a lot of physical problems. I was in despair, I felt trapped, and my partner was ready to throw me out. So it was sort of everything in combination that made me say, you know, what if I go to rehab? <laughs> and so finally, I did go to rehab at 32. I went to a longer term um, facility for women, it was 90 days minimum 
but then when I got there, it wasn't the best fit for me. So I actually ended up taking control and building an individual recovery plan that worked for me. I sort of synthesized a lot of different ideas from different programs, including um, secular peer support. In other words, not just 12 step, which wasn't a great fit, but I, I was always sort of listening and, um, pulling ideas and, and trying to implement the ones that I thought would help me. And I built what today we would call an individual recovery plan. And I just had, by the way, 30 years of continuous sobriety on January 13th. So I think I did a pretty good job of building a robust recovery foundation. <laughs> you, you did. You should have started your own foundation. <laughs> so having said that, which was worse, the drugs or the alcohol and why? Well, I mean, alcohol is a drug, right? It's just a liquid legal drug. Um, alcohol is underappreciated in America as far as it is still the number one drug killer. Even with the overdose epidemic that we're in, alcohol still killed more people last year than the overdoses. And so sometimes people underappreciate that. Alcohol is the most abused drug, but mo more people are have an alcohol use disorder than any other substance use disorder. The other thing is that alcohol, even in moderation, ha can have long-term physical impacts. I mean, for example, women who use moderate alcohol, and moderate for women is one drink a day, they still have a significantly higher risk of breast cancer. Um, and also, in general, people have higher risk of other cancers, heart, liver problems, all just even at moderate use. There is no safe level of alcohol, but certainly less is better. I just interviewed a gentleman in Phoenix who was in a head-on collision 65 miles an hour, and it was a DUI. Mm -hmm. And he, he got out of his vehicle, and he went over to check the other guy, and the guy just spilled out of his car onto the street. So it was, and now he's, now he's the spokesperson for MAD, which is a good thing. That's true. I mean, most vehicle accidents that w with substances involved, it's usually alcohol. Um, and so you're right, there's that additional risk. But also, uh, people die from alcohol from medical issues, but they also die themselves, you know, boating accidents, um, silly mistakes, you know, diving into the ocean that's not deep enough. I mean, all kinds of um, ju judgment is so impaired that people make mistakes that can kill them. And it, it is more common that you're going to die using alcohol from those kind of things. So you got through rehab. Were you married at the time? I was with my partner, who is now my husband, <laughs> but um, but um, he wasn't foolish enough to marry me when I was still using, and he really was at the end of his rope. And so when I got home from rehab, I first of all, I had to work on my trauma. It turned out I was correctly diagnosed with PTSD. I didn't just have abuse in childhood. I had several rapes. I, I lived with a violent boyfriend. So I had to um, go into therapy for my trauma. But my husband and I also did a couple years of couples counseling in order to really, you know, get our relationship on track. In the beginning, I wasn't sure we were going to make it. In fact, he told me directly he didn't think we were going to make it. But um, next month in April, actually, we're going to have our 40th anniversary, our 40th anniversary of being together. And so we did survive and we did eventually get married. That's terrific. What does he do? 
He used to manage a college radio station. Um, uh, in fact, he was inducted in the Bay Area, you know, Radio Hall of Fame. But he, too, is retired, and now he volunteers for his radio station. So he still keeps his finger in there. He's still involved. Good for him. Because retirement, what do you do when you retire? <laughs> Exactly. I mean, you're going to just sit around and watch television. It really is an opportunity for people to think about where they want to spend their time, right? You can get rid of the things you don't want to do and do the things you actually enjoy. And it is, I mean, even though I'm fairly busy, it's very different than the pressure of a 40 or 50 hour a week job. I mean, it's more flexible. I get to pick what I'm going to do and what I'm not going to do. So it is a for those of us lucky to be able to retire financially, and not everybody has that option, but for those of us who do, it can be a really wonderful time of life. <laughs> it is. Do you travel a lot? or? Well, I, you know, when my book came out last January, and so I was tra I travel around to speak. And so last year I was on the road a, a significant amount. I'm slowing it down now, but I am still, I, I speak at conferences, I do workshops, I, I speak at fundraisers, and I do trainings. Um, and then my husband and I are, are starting to add back in, uh, you know, vacation travel. Last year, all the travel was book and speaking travel. But <laughs> this year, we're going to take our first, like, actual vacation in two years uh, in, in April. So we try to travel. And we also, you know, we are getting old. So you, there's certain travels you want to do while you're still physically capable of doing the walks or the hikes or driving around the country, that kind of thing. Absolutely. Let's uh, get to the book. Why? Sure. Why did you write the book? And so, how did you uh -huh. determine that you were going to write the book? So when I was appointed a judge, and again, it was 20 years sober, right? It, it was sort of a natural time of reflection. Like, how did I go from shooting meth at 17, not getting sober until I was 32, and, and becoming a judge? And so I started to think about, could my story be of use? You know, would, it, would my story be useful? Because it was unusual. Um, and so then I started reading memoir, recovery memoir, which I hadn't read much of. And I noticed a couple things. One is that most of the memoirs, they sort of leap into to the addiction stories and, and they don't show where it came from and I really wanted to show in my book what led up to it sort of why it made sense why how trauma and child childhood can lead to substances being attractive and then I have you know the usual chaos of, of addiction but um but at the end of a lot of memoirs it's sort of like I went to a couple meetings and everything was great and it's like well that's not how recovery works <laughs> and so in my book 30 percent of it is my first three years of recovery because I wanted to show a more realistic example of, of what recovery looks like and also how I did it um, in an individual way, how I built a plan that worked for me. And so 30% of the book is recovery focused. So I, I didn't see the book that I wanted to write out there. And so I, I, I decided to write the book. And I will say it was also an interesting intellectual exercise to try to figure out how to write a good memoir. And so, you know, I was a great legal writer, but writing a memoir is more like writing a novel. It's, you know, immersive and in scene. And so I had to actually learn how to write memoir. And I like learning things that I don't know how to do. So that was an added bonus. Well, it's interesting. Uh, in my case, I co-wrote a book. And uh, I, I'm an idea guy. So I woke up at 3 in the morning with this idea. At 8 o'clock, I got up and I emailed a... Uh, a publisher in Vancouver, and I said, would you be interested in a book on this topic? 
figuring it's gone into the black hole. Two days later, they emailed me and said, our board loves the idea. Send us the first two chapters. Oh, that's fabulous. At which point I said, oh, shit. (laughs) And so I contacted my associate, and I said, Carla, congratulations. You now have co-authored on a book with me. (laughs) And that's that's how we started ours. And that was called The Give Back Economy, and thus the podcast, Give Back. And our royalties go to support the work that we do. So that's what's the way we do. See, and I mean, really, I viewed my book as part of my advocacy work. You know, it, 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 sir, it, I feel I wanted it to be able to be part of stigma reduction, also an example of a different way of recovery, but also it gets attention, that title from junkie to judge, and it gives me opportunities to speak and to educate people. You know, what is substance use disorder exactly? What, what, what is the process of recovery? What are the treatment options? What can friends and family do? So I really always thought of the book as part of the way to get me opportunities to be useful, to educate, and hopefully to en- re- reduce stigma and to reassure people that no matter how bad they are in the midst of their substance use disorder, if you know if they get sober, there's a way out and there's a beautiful life ahead for them. Okay, let's take a scenario. Let's say we have a woman with three kids and she's into substance abuse. And let's say in this case it's drugs, and you meet her for the first time. What are some suggestions you would make to her? Yeah, I mean, so first of all, not all substance use is problematic, right? I mean, including for alcohol. The the reality is that the majority of people that use substances they use it in moderation. And so my first question would be: Is it really is it really causing problems in her life, or is it more of a casual, you know, thing? But if it is causing problems in her life and and she's ready to get help, one of the problems in the U.S. is that we don't actually have, you know, readily accessible, affordable treatment for everyone for substance use disorder. I mean, when I went in, I, I didn't have insurance and I didn't have money and I had to be on a wait list for 10 weeks and I had to call every Monday to keep my name moving up the list. And if I missed a day oh, Monday, they would draw me to the bottom. And so it really will depend on what community she is in as to what's available to her. Also, does she have insurance, you know, it, that would, that would um, handle it. But with children, there's the added complication. A lot of people who are caregivers, whether for children or parents or, or whatever it might be, they can't really go inpatient. You know, it's not an option to go away for 30 or 60 or 90 days sometimes. But on the other hand, not everyone needs to go inpatient. There are a lot of really good outpatient programs where people can go in the evening. Um, and if you have insurance, there are also therapists and, who specialize in substance use disorders, and they can be a, a real help. There's also coaches or peer support specialists. So I would ask those kind of questions. Are you insured? What's available in your community? Could you go inpatient if you need to, you know, have someone take care of your kids, or do you want to look at the other alternatives? And then I go over the alternatives that exist. Okay, Mary Beth, you talked about advocacy. Can you give us a couple of examples of your doing yeah. that? Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, so my, my big thing is multiple pathways. So, for example, when I was in rehab, they told me that the only way to get sober was the 12-step way. And 12 steps is Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous and all the anonymouses. And 12 steps is good for many people, but it's also not the right fit for many others. And so part of what I advocate for is recognizing that there are other options. There's Life Ring Secular Recovery. I'm on the board for that. That's a peer support group. She Recovers also support. Um, smart recovery, recovery dharma. There are more, there's options. And uh, it's really best if the person isn't forced into one program. It's better if they are exposed to the choices so they can find the right fit. Because if you find the best fit, you're going to have a better chance of success. And so sometimes, um, not only do treatment programs, unfortunately, push people in one direction, but sometimes families do too. Because if the family only heard of AA, for example, they may get afraid if their family member says, I'm not going to do AA, I'm going to go to Life Ring instead, because they didn't hear, they never heard of it. And they may not, they may think it's not as good, when actually, it's just as effective as AA. And so part of my um, advocacy is to educate about the options and how they are all just as good, but also that the individual with a substance use disorder needs to be in charge of the choice, you know, to be able to pick what treatment plan, including what peer support group will work best for her. Two of the areas that we're uh, very much involved in, uh, like your comments on them, one is homeless. Yes. And the other is disability. And we've done a lot of research into both of those topics. And I've been in a homeless shelter and did a presentation on how to start a business for uh, homeless people. And that was a great experience. And then I have a couple of physical disabilities myself, but uh, I've done some amazing interviews with people in the U.S., have disability and they're doing amazing things so talk about those two areas well i mean there there is some overlap you know with substance use disorder and people being unhoused but it's actually not as strong as people think a lot of people assume like everyone who's unhoused has a drug addiction and it's just not true i mean the as I'm sure you know, the number one reason for the increasing number of unhoused people in the U.S. is the cost of housing, right? We don't have enough housing and people are priced out. Now, it is true that a, a, a noticeable percentage of people that are unhoused, either they had a substance use disorder before they were unhoused, but actually about 40% of those unhoused with a SUD developed their addiction because they were unhoused. They didn't have it before. But living in the streets is a trauma, right? Being unhoused is a trauma. And so when people are traumatized, they're more likely to turn to substances. Um, but yeah, there's a, a, you know, it's a complicated relationship about trying to get people who are unhoused. And also a lot of them, uh, people unhoused have mental health disorders. I mean, substance use disorder is a mental health disorder. It's, you know, it's in the diagnostic manual. It is a mental health issue, but often they'll have another one. And so when you're trying to get people off the street, you know, the real sort of best practices is doing what I'm sure, you know, wraparound services, right? Where you're going to try to get housing and at the same time, give them access to mental health treatment, physical treatment, because a lot of them have 
untreated physical conditions and try to stabilize people so that they can then move forward and maybe eventually, you know, be well enough to try to work again and those kind of things. Um, but yeah, America's, we, we, we don't have a very good social support system for people that are unhoused or for people with substance use disorders, and we're paying the price for that. What about disabled? I, I mean, you know, disability is certainly, um, I have some medical conditions myself. It's part of why I stopped working when I did. I can work, but not, I can't work full time anymore. And it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a challenge. I, I'm lucky that I don't really need, um, I mean, I needed some accommodations when I was working, which can be a problem because even though the law says that they have to do reasonable accommodations, if you have a disability, they can be really hard to get. Sometimes you have to fight. Luckily I was a lawyer and I knew how to advocate for myself and I was able to get what I needed, but yeah, people who are um, disabled are really sort of an untapped economic resource. Right. I mean, right now there's actually, we have a very low unemployment rate in most of the country and there are workers who aren't being tapped, who have disabilities, but with reasonable accommodations or part-time schedules could be um, contributing more and usually want to contribute more, but they're not given those opportunities. Excellent. Okay, the book. The name yes. of the book and where it's available. So the book is, um, and again, it's memoir, From Junkie to Judge, One Woman's Triumph Over Trauma and Addiction. It's on Amazon and all the usual sites, and your bookstore has it or can get it. But the other thing I'll say is that anyone interested in these topics, I, I'm on Twitter, at MaryBetho underscore, and I do not argue with people on Twitter. <laughs> what I do is I actually provide information about the things we've talked about today. I provide the new studies that come out, articles, my, my thoughts. So if anyone's is interested in the, these topics, they can follow me on Twitter as well. And I'm also on LinkedIn. And um, some of the opinion pieces that I've done, those are on my website, junkietojudge.com. And you can message me through my website and I answer every message. If anyone has a question or wants to talk about something, feel free to reach out. That's excellent. Thank you.